Anyone with a savings account these days is familiar with the impact of low interest rates. The most generous savings accounts in the U.S. barely pay 2%. Bonds aren't a whole lot better. There's just no easy way to get safe income these days. But it could actually be worse. In Europe and much of the world, rates are actually negative. I'm Alex Yule. This week on The Readback, I'm joined by Barron's economics writer, Matt Klein, who's just written a fascinating column about negative interest rates. Hey, Matt. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So I just refinanced my mortgage for 3.75%, and it seems really low by historical standards, right? But there, from what I understand, there are people in Denmark who are actually have mortgages that are less than zero. And that sounds pretty great for a home buyer, I would think. But tell us why it's a lot more complicated than that. So in Denmark and in much of Northern Europe, you have a situation where interest rates are negative. So in other words, it looks as if borrowers are being paid to borrow and creditors are essentially having to pay for the privilege of lending money, which is a very strange phenomenon. It makes no sense. Right. It seems based on sort of our lived experience backwards, right? We think that the whole point is borrowing is something that is hard and that's why you have to pay for it and you have to go through the whole rigmarole of applying for things. And this is a situation where actually, no, you're getting more money uh, you know, as a borrower, then you have to pay back in the future, which is a strange situation. So I'm doing them the favor by taking out money to buy a house. Right. Essentially, they're in a world where the cost of borrowing money is negative. And so if you are borrowing against, you know, a safe collateral like a house in Copenhagen or something like that, then you have an interest rate that is slightly below zero. Now, if we're going to get technical here, mortgages in Denmark and mortgages in the United States are a little different. They don't have 30-year fixed rates like we do. They're floating rates. Ah. But it's still the case that their monthly payments, they're still positive because they have to pay principal. But they're you know pretty good. So they can't complain. And the investors in those mortgages are having negative uh, returns, which is something that they probably find unpleasant. And the interesting question is, what is it telling you about the state of the economy? All right, before we go on too much further, let's just step back for a second and ask the most basic question, which is, why do interest rates matter? So interest rates are a market price, and they're the price of money, of purchasing power today versus the future. So all financial markets are essentially about moving purchasing power around from different people to different times and different places, depending on how much people want them. So you might not want to spend today in exchange for the ability to spend later in the future. You know, you're you're younger and, and you're going to want to have money in retirement for when you're not working, that sort of thing. And interest rates are one of the ways that we, you know, come up with a price between people like that who want to save and people who actually want to borrow now and spend more than they have. And, you know, they reflect what's going on in the economy and they also affect what's going on in the economy. And so the extent that we're seeing interest rates being negative, which is, you know, certainly seems very unusual – uh, then that that really matters for understanding. Like, well, we have to ask the question: Why is this happening, and what does it mean? Okay. And then, if I can just then continue what you've explained, basically, it's telling us that fewer people want to spend today, and more people want to save. That's right. So the relative demand for borrowing compared to desire for saving is has changed a lot, and okay. it's become that yeah, people want to save a lot more relative to borrowing. Historically, what generally happens is households save and then governments and businesses borrow, you know, to varying amounts. That's that's sort of like the normal thing that happens. And what happened starting in Japan and then it sort of happened in Europe and the U.S. to varying degrees is that businesses suddenly switched from being borrowers to savers um, for various reasons. So huh. in Japan, you had this big 
you know, bubble in the 80s and there was a big bust. And then they spent, well, basically ever since then, really sort of being very conservative and hoarding uh, cash and paying down debt. Right. You had something kind of like that in the U.S. and in parts of Europe after the 2000s of the tech bust. Yeah. And then it became really severe after 2008. And that's how you get Apple with $200 billion in cash on its balance sheet. Right. Right. That's, a, that's an extreme version, but exactly. Okay. So we have this environment now where, as you've put it, the interest rate is sort of the market price. And all these players have said, well, we really just don't want to borrow that much. And so the market price has fallen to zero or in some cases even below zero. Right. Again, though, like we come back to the mortgage example, me as a home buyer, negative rates sound like they could be great. Is there a problem with this dynamic? Are negative interest rates bad or can we not simplify it to that extent? So I think that they are bad, but I think it's important to think about why they're bad. I think it's that they are a signal of deeper problems in the economy okay. more than that they cause things that are problematic. So, you know, in the case of Europe, for example, you have a situation where it's been 12 years or something since the economy peaked, maybe 11 years since the economy peaked. You've had this essentially depression in much of Europe. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of places like Spain, Italy, and Greece where you had mass emigration. You had, you know, they're still like much poorer than they were in say 2007, 2008. I mean, this is a severe depression and the negative interest rates reflect that. Now you might argue that economic conditions in say Germany don't, aren't necessarily dictated by that, but they're part of a monetary union. Anyhow, like for Europe as a whole, it's not doing well. And okay. that's the negative interest rates reflect. I think in Japan, Japan actually, I think is relatively higher interest rates than Europe, although, but if you go to Japan, it's a nice place, at least especially if you go to like the, the big cities in Tokyo that are still growing. But a okay. lot of it is also, you know, decaying, right? Like there, there are things that are not as doing as well as they could be. In the U.S., interest rates are also very low. They're not negative, although, you know, if you subtract inflation, they are negative. So in that sense, we're also in a negative interest rate world. So in a real, in a, on real terms, which would adjust for inflation, we sort of are in a negative environment here too. That's right. And in fact, the difference between the U.S. and Europe and Japan is smaller if you account for inflation because a big reason why the U.S. interest rates are higher, somewhat higher, is because inflation and inflation expectations are relatively higher in the U.S. You kind of have a higher baseline to begin with. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But in all cases, it's, it's essentially reflecting you know, economic stagnation, which is not a good thing. So you have some really important points in your column, one of which is that you say there's a pretty easy way to solve this situation. Yes. <laughs> what is that? You just have to borrow more. So any sector of the economy could borrow more. Got it. And that would have an effect. And you can imagine different ways to do that. But the most straightforward one is just have the government borrow more. So you just lower taxes and you increase spending. One thing that's sort of interesting is if you look at 2017, there were the big tax cuts and then there was also increases in military spending and so forth. People thought that would potentially have an impact on interest rates. Interest rates actually have gone down since then. What essentially happened was the government increased its borrowing. Okay. And then... U.S. households in particular, and to a lesser extent, U.S. businesses essentially increase their savings. So it's sort of balanced out. Got it. Okay. If we're thinking about how to you know, do that more effectively for the purposes of raising interest rates, you might think about you know, targeting things a little differently or the amounts would have to be different. But, but conceptually, that's, you know, that could work. And, and, and in places such as Europe in particular, where they're all you know, in the aggregate, the European governments are running essentially balanced budgets. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer to me. Okay. And of course, as easy as that is mechanically, I'm guessing politically maybe not as easy to make that happen. Yes, that's right. In the U.S., it's hard. In Europe, it's especially hard because they actually have balanced budget amendments in most of their constitutions. So they have to change that. Are balanced budgets part of what's causing this problem in Europe? Yes, I think so. So I think the, the easiest way to think about this is that the government is just one of several sectors in the economy that can borrow money, you know, households and businesses being the other one. 
And if we're in a world where households and businesses don't want to borrow for whatever reason, which happens to be the case in general, particularly in Europe, but also to, you know, to a reasonable extent in the United States and Japan, then the government has to be stepping in and borrowing to prevent overall you know, credit demand from falling and interest rates from falling. And if you have these sort of politically imposed or ideologically imposed constraints saying you have to you know, limit your borrowing, you have to raise taxes and you have to cut spending to the point that you're not borrowing any money and your government debt is going down, then that's going to impose this artificial constraint on you know, the normal functioning of the market and lead to interest rates falling to sort of to balance that out. And that's what we've been seeing in Europe pretty aggressively. All right. So then next question is, we spend so much time writing about markets at Barron's talking about the Fed, right? So you have these central banks, mm. and they come in and they change target rates. And that happens in Europe with the ECB, in the U.S. with the Federal Reserve. So why isn't it just as simple as the Fed saying, sorry again, we're actually going to start raising again? Would that solve the problem? So I don't think so. When we talk about what it is that the, the Fed and the ECB and so forth are trying to do, you know, there is a market price that exists independent of what they do and that, you know, reflects sort of the underlying supply and demand for money. Mm-hmm. And they're essentially trying to match that. And they might not necessarily succeed all the time. And, okay. you know, to the extent that they don't succeed, that shows up in things like, you know, too much inflation or you know, deflation. Mm-hmm. They're not really lowering interest rates in the sense of, oh, they're really changing sort of their overall goals for policy. What they're essentially trying to do is just keep things stable. Okay. So let's take on face value that we have these zero rates, maybe negative rates. If we were to look at assets, be it stocks, be it real estate, what does well now? Are there things that do well in a negative interest rate environment? So, you know, this is a little more speculative, but I I think the thing that traditionally has done well, and it seems like it it sort of correlates with the performance of, of these kinds of things is gold and other precious metals. Okay. And I think part of the reason for that, which is intuitive, is that gold is an asset that pays essentially a zero rate, maybe a slightly negative rate. You think about the cost of storage, but the negative rate on gold is is capped. So it's just the cost of storage. And if you have negative interest rates and say like 4%, which that's not the world we're in, but if there were, then obviously something like gold, you know, having a negative interest, effective negative interest rate of say like negative 0.1% would be very attractive. Is this that environment? I mean, we always joke about just like stuffing cash under the mattress. In a world of negative interest rates, the more cash you could put there, the better you would be. Cash in theory would be good, but in practice, having that much paper money would be hard to accumulate. And then the storage costs, again, for that would also be pretty high. It gets expensive <laughs> I mean, because like physical, right. like the actual storage of it. Exactly. There's physical storage costs. And then there's also, you have to worry about someone, you know, breaking your house and taking your mattress, for Got example. It. I mean, okay. like that's, that I think is, again, if interest rates are negative enough, those storage costs are well worth paying. Okay. And then, of course, you know, the other point of view, some people would probably say that if you have negative interest rates that extreme, then governments would start limiting your ability to get cash in the first place. Okay. But that would be, that's a whole other. That's a whole other story. All right. Hopefully yeah. we don't have to go there anytime soon. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot, Matt. A year from now, do interest rates in the U.S. look higher or more like what they are in Europe right now, which is negative? So, in general, if I mean, if I could answer that confidently, then I would not have to, you know, be doing podcasts for a living. I could just, <laughs> you know, trade interest rates and live on the beach somewhere. But I think the key thing I hope we can take away from this is that they're contingent on economic conditions. And so, to the extent that the economic outlook 
changes between now and a year from now, and the, and the way that outlook changes affects people's willingness to borrow and to save, that's going to be the big driver. So if people become a lot more pessimistic right. in the U.S. and elsewhere about the sort of the state of the U.S. economy, and if that pessimism flows through to you know, higher saving by consumers, less, less spending by consumers, right. and retrenchment by businesses, then that will probably lead to lower rates. And conversely, if people become more optimistic, if households think that things are looking up and they can afford to take a little more risk and, and to borrow more and to spend more and save a little less, and businesses think that their market's going to expand and they want to you know, put more money into capital spending and, and less into sort of retained earnings, then, then interest rates might go up. And, you know, there's elements to which, you know, government policy could change as well over the next year, but that's even harder to predict. So we do have the election coming. Right. I mean, I think those are sort of the things we should be thinking about if, you're, if you want to be you know, making your own prediction, but it's hard to know how it's all going to play out. All right. Well, this was fascinating. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me. To read Matt Klein's columns on the economy, check out Barron's and, of course, Barron's.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The show is produced by Meta Lutzhoff. The Readback will return next Wednesday.